Join me in prayer. Lord, we pray that your word would be a mirror to our hearts and that we would see our hearts better today. And we thank you, Lord, that you are a God who restores, that you are committed to restoration, the restoration of relationships, the restoration of your creation. And so, Lord, help me as I bring your word to your people. Transform my heart, I pray, through your word, and do a work in your people as we now just quiet ourselves before you. And I ask, Lord, that the words of my heart, of my mouth, and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing to you and of great value to each one who's here. Pray this in Christ's name, amen. When you uh, look at the slide over my head on the tsunami, December 26, 2004, I don't know what you think about, but it's a day that we'll never forget. It's hard to believe that almost 300,000 people died, many of those on the islands of Indonesia and that part of the world. And we know that this storm caught people by surprise. You don't think that a person's going to drive their car down the beach if they knew this was coming. It came out of nowhere without warning. And the statistics are not only 300,000 people died, but almost 2 million people's lives were totally displaced. Entire villages wiped out. And you know what the officials were doing after the tsunami? They were both working the rescue angle, but they were also thinking, how can we get a better warning system in place so this kind of disaster doesn't happen? Well, you find out that warnings are only as effective as people hearing them and heeding them. So the greatest natural disaster that's faced our country happened back in 1900. It happened on September 8th on the island outside of Texas, Galveston, Texas. And on that day, history tells us that there was warning. There was warnings that went out four days before when the telegraphs came in, warning people about this raging storm that's brewing out in the Caribbean. Days before, sailors had come off the ships. They'd sailed through those high winds. They warned the people, it's coming. But Galveston was a very proud place. Historians say that complacency and hubris kind of added to the death toll where one out of every six people who resided on that island died, eight to 10,000 people. They kind of had this titanic mentality. It couldn't happen to us. You see, the storm was actually called Isaac's storm. Why Isaac? Because Isaac Klein was a U.S. Bureau climatologist, meteorologist. And he was the guy that was going toe-to-toe with people who said, we need to build a seawall to protect us from this kind of a storm. Isaac was saying, we don't need that. It'll never happen to us. And they took his word, never built a seawall. It's called Isaac's storm. This town was stuck on itself. It was quite a place. It was the crown jewel of the state of Texas, boasting its first post office, boasting the first telephones, started the first medical college. Strand Street down in Galveston was called Wall Street of the Southwest. They just didn't think it could happen to them, but it did. Greatest natural disaster. 
So we understand that disasters can happen out of the clear blue sky without a warning. And then we long for those warnings and find out that you can have a warning, like in Galveston. And it doesn't matter. In fact, the story of Galveston is the story of the prophets. And that's where we are today. The prophets have been warning God's people. And the warnings just didn't precede them by a few days or a few hours. The warnings preceded them before they ever stepped foot in the promised land. We read about it in Moses' words in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 47, when he says this. Because you did not serve the Lord your God joyfully and gladly in times of prosperity, therefore in hunger and thirst and nakedness and dire poverty, you will serve the enemies the Lord sends against you. He'll put an iron yoke on your neck until he's destroyed you. The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the ends of the earth, like an eagle swooping down, a nation whose language you will not understand. And as you read through the history of the Old Testament, you find out they heard the warnings repeatedly over centuries, but they never did anything about it. And so Nehemiah, who's writing at the very end of this period of the Old Testament, looks back and says this in chapter 9, verse 26. They were disobedient and rebelled against you. They put your law behind their backs. They killed your prophets who had admonished them in order to turn them back to you. They committed awful blasphemies. Verse 29. You warned them to return to your law, but they became arrogant and disobeyed your commands. They sinned against your ordinances, by which a man will live if he obeys them. Stubbornly, they turned their backs on you. They became stiff-necked and refused to listen. We understand that hubris and complacency didn't just start in Galveston. It's all over the Old Testament history of God's people. And so we're moving into that history. And the connection to the prophets, to where we were last week, the wisdom books is this. The wisdom book tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What is that fear of God? It's seeing God for who he is and responding appropriately with reverence, with affection, with humility and obedience. And that wisdom that comes from fearing God, from seeing God for who he is and responding appropriately, gives us the skill then for living life in a God-honoring way in the midst of a God-dishonoring world. And what we have then in the prophets is God's people have traded wisdom for folly. They have traded the words of God, his good commands, for wicked counsel. And so we come to the prophets, and let's just put that picture up there again on the screen of these last 17 books of the Old Testament. And you got the division of the major prophets and the minor prophets. And the major prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah, are writing before God's people are taken off into captivity. The northern tribes in 721 by the Assyrians, the southern kingdom in 586 by the Babylonians. Lamentations is kind of bracketed off there because Jeremiah the prophet who writes Lamentations, he's writing a lament. He's weeping. He's called the weeping prophet. And the reason he's weeping and lamenting is because Jerusalem's been sacked. The city's been destroyed. The temple of God has been desecrated. And then Ezekiel and Daniel write during the period after God's people have been taken into exile. They're writing to God's people who actually are in exile. 
So you got the major prophets, not major because they're more important, but major because they represent larger sections in the prophetic writings. Then you've got the minor prophets. The first nine are pre-exile. And then Haggai down through Malachi are talking to God's people after and during the exile. And connected to those last three books of the Old Testament would be these last three books of the history, Ezra, Nehemiah, who record the history of God's people going back to Jerusalem, rebuilding the walls, rebuilding their lives, rebuilding the temple of God. And then Esther, who writes, who gives us the history of what life was like in the Persian Median Empire as she becomes queen after Queen Vashti. So that's the prophetic books that we're looking at as we close out the Old Testament. Now, what we want to know is that the history of the prophets is really overlaying the history of the kings. So two weeks ago, we looked at Saul, we looked at David, a man after God's own heart, and we looked at David's son Solomon. And you know that Solomon just brought the whole country and nation into a nosedive. His many wives led his heart astray. His many horses and chariots made him think that he had a strong enough army to deal with any enemy. Forgot to trust God. And what happens is after he dies, Rehoboam, his son, takes the throne. And he's a harsh ruler. In fact, his harsh rule brings about a civil war in the nation, specifically the ten northern tribes. They say, Rehoboam, we want nothing to do with your reign. We're going to crown our own king. And so they crown Jeroboam as their king. Civil war brings this divide, divided kingdom. The northern ten tribes, sometimes called Israel or Ephraim or Samaria, and then the southern two tribes, Simeon and Judah, which referenced later in the scriptures is always referenced to as Judah. You got this divided kingdom. And so the prophets are writing during this time of the kings. And when you think about their writing, you want to understand that what it tells us clearly is the disaster came because they had hard hearts. The disaster came because they were complacent and didn't heed the warnings. And so in 721, when Sennacherib, the Assyrian general, takes off God's people in the north into Assyria, 2 Kings 17 tells us why. Verse 15. They rejected his decrees, God's decrees. And the covenant he had made with their fathers and the warnings he had given them, they followed worthless idols. And listen to this. And they themselves became worthless. They they imitated the nations around them, although the Lord had ordered them, do not do as they do. And they did the things the Lord had forbidden them to do. They forsook all the commands of the Lord their God and made for themselves two idols, cast in the shape of calves and an Asherah pole. They bowed down to all the starry hosts and they worshiped Baal. They sacrificed their sons and daughters in the fire. They practiced divination and sorcery and sold themselves to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, provoking him to anger. So the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from his presence. Only the tribe of Judah was left. Now, now you think about this. It's a divided kingdom, but it's family. These are Abraham's children, the descendants of Jacob, of Israel. And they've just seen what's happened in the north. You'd think they might have learned the lesson here, but they didn't. For a little over 100 years later, 
in 605 BC, what you have is King Nebuchadnezzar swoops down After defeating the Assyrians, he swoops down now this Babylonian king and he starts carrying off God's people. So Daniel in 605 and some of his compatriots are whisked away to Babylon. In 586 is the fall of Jerusalem. It happened to them. And yet God told them that in his grace, he would bring back his people after 70 years in Babylon and start to rebuild his people in that place that he had given them. We read about that 70-year prediction in Jeremiah chapter 29, and verse 11 is going to ring. You're going to go, I know that verse, but you may not know it in its context. Here's what Jeremiah writes. This is what the Lord says, verse 10. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you, Judah, and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place, to the promised land. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. And when you see God's response to his rebellious children, you're just amazed. I don't know how you read the Old Testament. I don't know if you've ever read it. But there's a lot of people that go, I don't like the God of the Old Testament. We haven't read the prophets. Because the picture we have of God and the prophets is of this incredibly compassionate, slow to anger, merciful God who is faithful to his promises in the midst of their unfaithfulness. And so he said, look, when I made my promise to Abraham to be his God and the God of his people, I meant it and I'm sticking to my word. I'm going to bless you and through you, I'm going to bless all the peoples and families of the world. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to make you into a great nation and I'm going to give you the land. And he says, look, my plans for you are not for destruction, but they're plans to prosper you, to give you a future. And in that future, to make you a people of hope. And we need to be amazed. We need to be amazed. Because all you need to do is think about your own kid or someone you love who continues to defy you, who continues to rebel against you, who just, you know, just has nothing to do with you. And to know what your inclination is going to be is not necessarily to move towards them. But that's what God's doing in the prophets, and it's beautiful. And the way that God's moving towards his people is through these prophets. And these prophets are God's spokesmen. They're speaking for God. They've been called by God. And one of the phrases that could, in a sense, is a banner phrase over the prophets is the phrase, thus says the Lord. In fact, of the 414 times it happens in the Bible, 349 of those times happen in the prophets from Isaiah all the way through Malachi. So they're speaking for God. And what are they doing? They're not just predicting the future, but they're proclaiming God's word to the people that need to hear from God. So what'd they say? Well, they started like this. They were like prosecuting attorneys. And they came and they prosecuted and they said, here are the indictments against you. You have broken the covenant. You have sinned. And and here's how you've done it. You've erected idols and you now worship those idols. You're even sacrificing your own children to these idols that are no better than the wood and the stone that they've been carved out of. They're worthless. You have committed spiritual adultery. That's the charge against you. Not only that, 
You not only have not loved me, you've not loved your neighbor. You're not taking care of the disenfranchised, the vulnerable, the oppressed, the widows, the orphans, and the poor. You are indifferent towards them. And I bring that charge against you. Not only that, I bring your worship as a charge against you. And maybe if we saw them, we'd go, really? It looked like the real thing. But God knew, and they knew it wasn't. Because it was external. It was ritual. And it was all this ritual wrapped around hypocrisy because their hearts weren't in it. And so they were saying the right things and doing the right things, so to speak. But it wasn't from the heart. They truly didn't love God. It wasn't manifest in an obedient life. You want to worship God? says, you got to worship me in all of life, not just through external rituals. Goes on to say, not only that, I bring this charge against you. You don't trust in me anymore. You're making alliances with all these other people to protect you. You forgot that I'm the God who delivered you out of Egypt. And you're looking for other people to be your helper. I'm your helper. You've turned your back on your helper. Almighty God. There was wickedness and violence, and the list goes on and on. So the prophets are speaking for God, and they're bringing the charges against God's people, and they're basically saying, you guys have messed up. You've broken the terms of the covenant. You said back in Sinai, we're going to do it. We'll be your people, God. We're going to follow your ways. We're going to follow your word. We're going to follow your commands, and you haven't. But they didn't stop just there. Then they said, here's what you need to do. You need to turn back to God. You need to turn away from all that you've been doing and you need to center yourself back on God and his purposes with all of your heart. And so Joel would say in Joel chapter 2, verse 12 and 13, Even now declares the Lord, Return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. And so he says to the prophets, hey, if you turn, if you turn back to me, I'm going to forgive you. It's going to go well for you. If you don't, certain disaster, certain disaster. But the prophets didn't just speak for God speaking about the present situations, proclaiming God's word to the people. They also spoke about the future. There's this predictive role. In fact, a lot of us, when we think about the prophets, that's what we think about. The majority of what they did was they foretold. They spoke forth God's word. Thus says the Lord. A smaller portion, but an important portion of what they did is they foretold. They predicted what was going to happen. And when they did this, it's important to understand that they had several events in in view. They had their near future in view, the good or the bad that was going to happen to them. Then they had the Christ event in view, God's deliverance through his promised Savior as he came to this earth and would die for their sins on the cross. And then out even beyond that, what they referred to oftentimes as the day of the Lord would be Christ's second coming, when he comes not as Savior but as King and as Judge to establish his kingdom here on this earth righteousness and justice reigning forever and so the way i think about it, it's like the boy's bb gun and last night you know i didn't have any of the technical terms you know i'm a city boy from chicago i didn't get it so i i just said there's this thing in the middle of the barrel it's this v thing that's what i called it and then at the end i said there's this doohickey at the end and you got to line those two things up so then you got the third thing is the target and then someone came to me after we said well 
That's the, the near sight, is that right? The far sight? Well, anyway, whatever those things are, you know you got to line them up. And when you got the cover tar- when you got the target covered, all those three things are in line. That's what the prophets are doing. So sometimes they're talking about that near event, but it's not just about the near event. Because that near event is kind of covering the second event and the third event. And you just want to remember that as you're reading the prophets. It'll be helpful to you. And when you think about the prophets speaking about the future, it just doesn't come out of nowhere. It comes about what God has been doing and promising way back with Abraham. And so when the prophets predict, they're tying back to the promises that God gave to Abraham. When he gave that banner phrase, I want to be your God and I want you to be my people. We'll hear that in the prophets again. And so when they talk about God's people, now they're talking not about this great nation, but they're talking about this little band that's going to come out of Judah that the prophets call this remnant, this little small portion that God's going to use to rebuild his people. When it talks about the land, it's not just talking about the land of Canaan that he brings them back into, but it's something even bigger than that, you find out, that the promised land is actually talking about heaven. And so the promise in Isaiah 65 is that God says, I'm, I'm going to make new heavens and a new earth. And when you get to the end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 19, there it is, the new heavens and the new earth that God promised through the prophets way back in Isaiah's day. But then there's this promise of blessing. Remember, Abraham, I'm going to bless you, and through you, all the families of the world are going to be blessed. How does that happen? God's blessing happens through this promised Savior. And in Isaiah... And in the prophets, we start to learn more about who this promised Savior is. So we learn in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, that he is going to be born of a virgin. We also know from Micah 5, too, that he's going to be born in this little town called Bethlehem, the city of David, the house of bread. We remember back in the Psalms that he's going to be king, David's eternal son, the ruler over all the nations, he's king. But Isaiah tells us there's more to this king. He's going to be a suffering king. He's going to be a suffering servant who lays down his life for the sins of those who have rebelled against God. So we read in Isaiah 53 these words, verse 5 and 6. And when you read this, it sounds like it's already happened. But so certain were the prophets in their view of the future that they spoke about it and wrote about it as if it had already happened. So it sounds like it's happened, but it hasn't yet. It's going to happen, Isaiah says, and he's talking about Christ. Verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So he was pierced and crushed and wounded because of our sin. And this is a whole new concept that's being unveiled here in the prophets. This suffering servant who would die for our sins in our place. And the blessing goes on through this promised Savior. And it's through Christ's death on the cross that the new covenant is ratified and inaugurated. So remember... When Jesus takes the cup the night before he's crucified, he holds it up and he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. It's sealed in my blood. It's inaugurated in my death on the cross. 
Well, what is that new covenant? And why do they need a new covenant? They need a new covenant because the old one has been broken. Who broke it? God didn't break it. The history of the Old Testament is God's been faithful, God's been faithful, God's been faithful, God's been faithful. The history of God's people is they haven't, they haven't, we haven't, we haven't. And so God says, I'm going to make a new covenant. He writes about that in Jeremiah 31. He says, the time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And here it is in verse 33. This is the covenant. I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Now think back to Mount Sinai when the law was first given. How did it come to God's people? What did Moses break on the rocks? The two tablets. God, the finger of God, Moses says, wrote down the Ten Commandments in tablets of stone. God says, what was external now needs to be internal. The reason the old covenant has failed is because you got hard hearts and you need new hearts. In fact, that's how Ezekiel expresses it when he talks about this new working of God that's going to happen through Christ. He writes in Ezekiel 36, verse 26, I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I'll remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. You will live in the land I gave your forefathers. You will be my people and I will be your God. And so here it is. The track record's clear. God's given us a picture of our hearts in the whole Old Testament. And what we have is the summary of the prophets. We've got stone cold hearts. We've got hearts of stone and we need new hearts. And the new hearts come from this promised Savior who forgives us of our sin and gives us his spirit with this new heart so that the inclination of our heart is actually to want to obey God, to want to delight in his word, to be that kind of a wise person. And so when you get to the end of the prophets, it's time for a heart checkup. I mean, it's time for a spiritual stress test. So how do you know if you need a new heart? How do you know? Because what God was telling the people is you need a new heart. So let's see what he said to the people in that day to see if maybe that can help us understand if we need a new heart. What was the first thing? Well, the first thing had to do with obedience. You know you need a new heart if you're unwilling or unable to keep God's word, to obey God. If you don't even have that desire, or if you have the desire, but you know you just don't have the ability to do it, well, maybe that's an indication. You need a new heart. Here's the second thing. You know you need a new heart. When pride and complacency keep you from hearing and heeding God's warnings. I mean, it's, it's the Galveston syndrome. When, when, when your inclination isn't positive, you know, what do they do to the prophets? It's not good. You didn't want to be a prophet back then. They killed the prophets. They imprisoned the prophets. They spit at them. They told them to shut up. 
They tell them, go talk to somebody else. We don't want to hear what God has to say. How do we respond to people that bring forth God's word, even hard words that would point out that our hearts aren't right before God? We're not loving him. We're not loving our neighbor. How do I respond to that? You know, it's a sad story that the way the history records it about this Isaac Klein, this guy who was convinced they didn't need a seawall. The day the storm blew in, it said that Isaac Klein got in his horse and buggy and started running all and down, up and down the beach, telling people, get out, get to the mainland, run. You know what happened? As one of the steamships broke free from its moorings and knocked out three of the bridges that gave safe passage to the mainland. He lost his own wife. It was too late. It was too late. But here's the good news. It's not too late for you. It's not too late for me to heed the warning. The thief on the cross dealt with his heart in the very last minutes of his life and found God's mercy and grace. You know you need a new heart when pride and complacency keep you from heeding God's warning. You know you need a new heart when you find yourself worshiping the idols of our day. Well, I haven't seen too many people bowing down to calves lately. But boy, there's some idols in our day. Don't be mistaken. There's idols in our day. And the axiom that's sad in the prophets is this. We become what we worship. So 2 Kings 17 says, they worshiped worthless idols and they themselves became what? Worthless. Hosea 9.10 says, they worshiped vile gods and they themselves became vile and wicked. So we become what we worship. So if you worship money, what do you become? A greedy, covetous person that now places possessions on a higher value as the people that God's placed in your very own life. You worship yourself, and what do you become? A self-centered, egotistical maniac that has a shriveling heart because all it needs to do is take care of one little person, you. You become what you worship. And if you find yourself worshiping the idols of our day, God's saying, hey, you need a new heart. Here's one that's been hitting me through the eyes, between the eyes. It's this whole matter of acting indifferently towards injustice. Acting indifferently toward the vulnerable and the oppressed in our community, the widows, the orphans, the poor, the aliens. God says, hey, you can't be right with me and say you love me if you're not taking care of those people. If, you, if you're indifferent, it's not the government's job. And it's not enough for us to say, praise God that Door Creek is committed to these kinds of people. I mean, it gets down to Mark. What are you doing? What are you doing about the people that live right here in a stone's throw from this auditorium? What am I doing to share God's mercy and compassion and stand up for justice? Hey, if you're indifferent to all of that, you know what? And we need a new heart. There's another huge indictment in the prophets, and it has to do with leaders. And there's this interesting connection that you see real clearly in the prophet Malachi. In the prophet Malachi, you've got religious leaders who are just a mess. Their hearts are far from God. And what it does is it influences a group of people who are unfaithful to God, and it manifests, and then they're unfaithful to each other. So what does God hate in Malachi 2.15? He hates divorce. He hates the breaking of the covenant relationship. He hates adultery. 
And, and you see the, the connection. So the reason they were unfaithful here on the horizontal was because they didn't have it right with God. Of course they were going to be unfaithful here. They weren't faithful to God. And the reason they were unfaithful with God is they had a bunch of leaders that weren't faithful to God. And so it's a gut check. And it's a reminder that we need new hearts if our leadership is influencing people negatively in terms of their love for God. Am I helping or hindering those I lead to love God? There's a sense where my kids, Lori, my wife, the staff that work with me, that you as a congregation, you become a reflection of my leadership. We need to understand that that could be an indication that we need a new heart. Well, God's in the business of giving new hearts. And you know what? Some people, they get to the point where they take the stress test and you know what happens. Maybe it happened to you. You're not going home, buddy. You're going right to the hospital because you're a heart attack waiting to happen. But here's the deal. God says, I don't do angioplasty. I don't even do bypass. I do transplants. I'm not into reforming your heart. I'm into transforming your heart. You've got a heart of stone. It's calcified. All the arteries are occluded. You are a heart attack waiting to happen. You are spiritually flatlined dead. You need life. I can give you that life. What a great thing to come here today and maybe understand the best thing that you can understand is you need a heart change. And better than that, that you can get a heart that will never wear out. A heart that will never be rejected by your body. A heart that will bring you life abundant and eternal. Let's pray. So, Lord, there's people here this morning that need new hearts. And we just pray that by your Spirit, they would understand that. And they wouldn't just hear it today like the people of Galveston, but they do something about it. That they trust in your son who died in their place and who offers a new heart, a heart that's indwelt by your spirit, a heart that gives peace, freedom from guilt, a heart that brings abundant, eternal life. And Lord, then there's some of us who we've received that heart, but we realize our hearts are drifting. They're starting to calcify. And just like we sang earlier, we need you to restore and renew our hearts. Do that, we pray. For the glory of your name and for the good of each one here. In Jesus' name, amen.